Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. This week, we have a treat for our listeners. Two episodes with Dr. Colin Sheeman. Dr. Sheeman is a thoracic surgeon at the University of Calgary and the current program director for the thoracic surgery program. We discuss a key issue in modern surgical training. Are direct entry programs good or bad for training and trainees? Dr. Sheeman also gives us his approach for intraoperative teaching. Don't forget to check out our bonus episode this week where Dr. Sheeman gives us his approach to lung nodules and lung cancer screening. If you've been enjoying the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. It really helps us out. And also let us know what you think about splitting the episodes up into two, as we did with this series this week. Let us know if you like it, you don't like it, or any comments or suggestions that you have. You can email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at canjsurge. Thank you and on with the show. Can you start us off by just telling us a little bit about where you grew up and what your training pathway has been? Grew up on the mean streets of middle-class Southwest Calgary. Um, I had two loving and supportive parents and enjoyed a fairly typical Alberta childhood playing sports and things of that nature. I was very fortunate to get into medical school at the University of Calgary, where I then went on to do my residency in general surgery and then followed that by thoracic surgery. I was uh, the first member of my family to, to get involved in medicine. At the completion of my thoracic surgery residency, I had a a very strong desire at that time to broaden my perspectives. And I, I sort of knew I needed to attain some training elsewhere. And so I did an additional fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Um, as Chad and I have talked about many times before, I think that year away was incredibly important for me. And it's something that I, I strongly recommend to all of our trainees, even, even sometimes when they don't want to hear it. I think it made a big impact on me. Um, Following that, I was fortunate to start my thoracic career at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. It was a fascinating and somewhat of an unprecedented time of a complete upheaval in that group, which then blossomed into the busiest program in the country, really. Um, finally, in 2016, I was lucky to be able to come back to Calgary and to be closer to parents and grandparents and many of the mentors who taught me as I was learning surgery. Um, and then uh, just during my career, I've, I've worked pretty hard to do a number of brief sort of visits or observerships for a few days or a week or two at a time, just to see how different experts do a variety of things. And so I've had little visits to friends in Montreal and Toronto, British Columbia and England. And I would say for these, for me, these have sort of formed an important part of my CME and my training. 
Yeah, I mean, we've heard from so many guests, including your your colleague, uh, Dr. Christian Finley, about just how formative uh, outside experiences have been and, and continue to be. And I, I really like the idea of you continually trying to go, even now, and, and spending a little bit of time in, in other places. I think there's so much to be gained from that. I, I want to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on sort of the whole training pathway for thoracic surgery. You're, you're the current program director for the Thoracic Surgery Fellowship in Calgary. And my understanding is that thoracic surgery initially actually went towards a direct entry model, similar to what the vascular surgeons do now in terms of, you know, right out the gate out of medical school, you, you directly match into vascular surgery, and then you train for five years, and then you're, you're a vascular surgeon, as opposed to the current training pathway I think in most places, in Canada at least, for thoracic surgery where you do five years of general surgery and then uh, two years of thoracic surgery. So I'm curious uh, how you sort of see the interplay of the base general surgery training and the subsequent thoracic surgery fellowship. Do you think there is still a value for that base general surgery training? Um, and what, what are the synergies, if there are any? Um. So, Amir, I think that's a great, and it's actually an increasingly topical question. Um, you're hearing rumblings of this concept in, in many different areas. I, I actually had a colleague and a friend who participated in that short direct entry trial, which took place at the University of Toronto. I also have a, a few friends in the United States who have participated in one of the, the now four different eligibility streams available in the United States, which sort of range from five plus three model on the longer end to the I-6 direct entry route into cardiothoracic surgery from medical school. And so they're, they're fortunate in their numbers. They're trying a variety of different, I think, strategies to see uh, what, the, what works. Um, and as you guys know, the vast majority of general thoracic surgery residents in Canada come as graduates from general surgery. And I think for good reason, I personally think thoracic surgery is in, in a very fortunate secondary residency role as general surgery provides a, a very strong foundation for, for thoracic training. Um, residents come with an incredibly strong synergistic skill set related to physiology, sepsis, nutrition, organ failure, tissue handling, and, and fairly advanced surgical skills laparoscopy and anatomic foundations in the neck and the abdomen. And, and it's, it's incredibly um, well suited to, to help us teach people thoracic surgery. A, a trained general surgeon has a, a vast skill set such that I think thoracic surgery program directors are, are fairly privileged and, and well poised to, to hit the ground running, so to speak, and to try to teach a fairly different set of diseases and operations with a lot of at least conceptual overlaps. And so I would say currently I can't think of a better stepping stone for, for us as thoracic surgery teachers than general surgery. Um, it's, it's, it's not the only exclusive route, but it's very well suited for it. Um, just for the purposes of comparison, when I was at McMaster, our program admitted international fellows for additional thoracic surgery training. And, and we actually got to work with boarded surgeons from a variety of countries that didn't have necessarily any general surgical training or, or um, had general surgical training in a different environment. And that was fairly evident of that 
if you will, in some cases, a weaker foundation than we have in Canada. And, and in many respects, it made it a tougher hill to climb for them, as well as for us as teachers, for sure. Obviously, there's many different training paradigms, depending on where you go. And because the, the, fundamentally, the, the issue is that, you know, the training pathway gets very long. And you wonder how much of the skill sets that you build, specifically with regards to like specific anatomic understanding or knowledge, you wonder how much of that carries over when you're and now a thoracic surgeon and doing, you know, uh, sometimes in, in some people's cases, completely different operations than what you spent your five years of general surgery training doing. So, you know, I know there's there's certainly some talk about having sort of a direct entry model where you do a couple years of uh, undifferentiated general surgery training, and then you go on and uh, you do the rest of your training in your specific uh, uh, field. Like, you know, you do three years of general surgery, and then you move on to do three years of HPE or three years of colorectal, three years of thoracic, etc. Do you think there's any merit to that concept? Or uh, do you think that the, the model that we currently have makes sense uh, the way it is right now? Um, you know, I, I wasn't aware that that was a, a growing movement within the general surgical subspecialties, but I, I, I can say that I'm, I'm not at all surprised to hear that. Um, as you mentioned, in my sort of surgical life, vascular surgery split off as a direct entry out, and before that it was cardiac surgery. And, um, I'm... I'm not sure that I think it's necessarily wise if we look at having these quite subspecialized areas be routes of entry straight from medical school. I have some some concerns about that model, um, but I can see several reasons why, as you say, that concept has merit and is worth considering, or at least variations of it, as you've mentioned. I think the depth and volume of knowledge required to graduate a specialist or a subspecialist today is, is immense. Um, certainly from my perspective, one or two year programs, and I suspect this holds true of HBB and colorectal, have an increasingly difficult task to teach these fairly huge bodies of knowledge in such a, a short period of time. And then further, the breadth and more importantly, the expectation of technical excellence in the execution and outcomes of these procedures is forever becoming a higher and higher bar to reach. And so, although some procedures have become chronologically faster and quicker to do with undoubtedly better outcomes, very few of them have become technically easier or less demanding to perform. And so um, I think with the move towards less invasive procedures with broader physiologic and oncologic boundaries sort of being pushed every day. Um, I think it's made things technically more difficult from my perspective. And so, you know, even a few short years ago, gone are the days when someone could do a few colon resections during a general surgery rotation over several months, even many months potentially, and then they would be fairly safe and, and well positioned to go on and do that in practice. I think, you know, that just as a micro example, things are often done now laparoscopically, often with um, following new adjuvant treatments. And, and then you couple that with very highly scrutinized outcomes, which should and will be compared to the best of your peers in the business. And I can see why all of us are wanting more dedicated time to our areas of focus. Um, 
you know, like, would it be better to learn biliary surgery for four years or one year? You know, like, obviously, I think I would rather have the person that had a chance to learn it for four years. And so I think there's huge merits to the idea. And as you said, that that obviously pushes up against what is displaced in the process. And so does that mean you'll no longer know how to operate on elective breast cancer or trauma patients? Or, you know, what do you carve out in the quest to make it more efficient? Um, you know, does it mean that we have five or six offshoots of general surgery after, as you say, sort of a core base of training? And I, I find this sort of fight between ultra specialization, reasonable lengths of training and the breadth and knowledge, a very difficult interface. I, I could imagine programs like general surgery morphing into something as you've alluded to, like what they sort of call the joint training programs in the United States that use a four plus three model or, uh, you know, a potentially a three plus three model. So for example, as you've hinted at, acknowledge that not all general surgery entrants are going to be doing elective um, procedures across all disciplines, and that, and then you sort of give them a chance to gain a, a critical skill set and have them fraction off fairly early, and then allow them additional time within their subspecialty. I, I think, I think that would be a better method to achieve greater specialization than just simply adding more time at the end. And I, I get the sense with the new surgical education paradigm with competency-based training. And I think as we see how that unfolds in the next five or six years and, and certain elements get very parceled out that um, I think more and more we're going to be asking these questions in the future. So I, I, I personally think that model that you hinted at has a lot of potential value. Certainly it's something at the, at the HPB fellowship level, whether it's the fellowship council or the HPBA in our circumstance for a number of years now have really had some extremely deep discussions, you know, in, in what's really a North American wide match about some of the, in particular, technical limitations of our, of our general surgical graduates across the continent coming into HPB fellowships. And as you know, HPB fellowships can be super high volume one year or uh, medium to high volume two year fellowships. And just the um, challenge of trying to, you know, take um, uh, a graduating general surgery resident who has maybe done one third of the total volume of cases that you did in your general surgical residency and trying to make them uh, an independent, competent, safe um, HPB surgeon with significant potential after 12 months is really, really challenging. So there's, there's been a number of notable folks that have wondered maybe some of these fellowships should be a, a mandatory second fellowship. In other words, maybe you should have to go do surgical oncology or trauma or colorectal or something before you enter maybe some of these more technically advanced uh, fellowships. And I, you know, in that conversation, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable because I echo some of your thoughts, I think too, like, where are we going with this? How long does this end up being? But it, you know, at the end of the day, in many ways, volume is so critically important to develop technical expertise. And I, I just don't know how you get around that without really altering the, the system uh, that we have now. What, what are your thoughts on that? Wow. I, uh, I can absolutely see how and why 
experts and teachers would be comfortable with that transition and would want that. I, I'm not sure it's the best direction for us to go in. Um, it's undeniably easier and arguably safer to teach a new complex set of procedures or procedure such as a Whipple or a laryngectomy to a trainee who has a fairly high level mastery of the local anatomy and, and, and skilled hands with respect to tissue handling and suturing. But I can't help but wonder at some point if that's a real net win for programs and for society just to keep stacking these on top of each other. And, you know, to be super blunt, like somebody has to do the hard work of training the junior residents. And so, um, you know, I, I've worked with and witnessed fellows and registrars from other countries during that. Some of my uh, training opportunities that have, you know, these never ending residencies or registrar structures around the world. And, and some of these fellows are in their middle ages. Like these are guys with gray hair and receding hairlines and their kids are in high school. And I just think, wow, like, I don't know if, if this is the perfect time, you know, cognitively, training wise for personal reasons for you know length of service delivery to society if that's really the best answer but I, I certainly understand how it evolves um, if you gave me a choice I would counter that I really do think having you know I got the sense when I was going in general surgery that, that a lot of folks have a fairly comfortable idea with what they're going to be interested in when they're done kind of at that three, four year mark. And, and certainly not everybody does, but, but um, it's not to say that those individuals aren't going to benefit hugely from learning um, thyroidectomy, for example, or, or liver resection. But if, if they kind of know what they want to focus their mental energies on and their scholarly energies on, I personally think the four plus three or three plus three model um, is a better trade-off. And I, and I think you can spit people out kind of in the six to seven year window with fairly high level expertise rather than the challenge that you allude to Chad, which is just, you got somebody that's there for 12 months and you got to build rapport with them, teach them the system figure out what their baseline level of skill is. And then in a fairly condensed period of time, transfer like a master level of skill. Like I, I get that that's not ideal. And so I, I'm not opposed to lengthening that time when you, when the stakes are high, but I just don't know if it should be done at the expense of doing it after, you know, HBB fellowship one and then HBB fellowship two. You know, I just, that doesn't quite feel right to me. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you, you, you said exactly you know, summarized really what I said in those meetings for the same reasons. And sure, surely we can improve the quality and the structure of training earlier rather than dumping at the back end for sure. And, you know, the other thing that you, that you touched on that I think is, is particularly uh, relevant is the, the innovation and the, the rapid movement towards minimally invasive surgery, whether that's, you know, laparoscopic hepatitis, and Whipple procedures, well, we can debate those two all day, or whether it's you know, laparoscopic esophagectomies, and I'm sure you can debate that all day. Um, it's, it's hard to know exactly you know, how to insert some of these extremely complex MIS procedures into the training paradigm and when to do it as well. Even thoracic surgery, which is two, almost two full years of additional training, 
we feel a fairly big push to get, I would say, the average person through um, where everybody in the room feels safe and comfortable. Like it's it's just, it's a high bar to reach. So I I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I hope our listeners aren't aren't listening to this thinking that these guys are talking about the negative and and, and you know instability too much, but. You know, to maybe just switch gears. One of the things that Amir and I both know very well, both um, you know, uh, individually and collectively, when we talk to your your trainees or they talk to us behind your back, so to speak, is that you have a really beautifully masterful way of of grading responsibility and providing opportunities to learners of all different levels. I, I was wondering how how you frame that, and and you clearly have thought a lot about it, and in particular how you approach it. And, maybe how a guy like me could, could get better at it, you know? <laughs> um, well, that, that's very kind of you guys to say that. Thank you. Um, I, I would say that the, the issue of maximizing the educational value from a clinical experience or in the case that, that we're talking about an operation is something I, you're right, I've thought a fair amount of, about. Um, and I've certainly gotten better at it with time. And despite that, it's still something I struggle with often. Um, and so I guess I would begin by saying that, sadly, it, it, it really first derives from, from the individual's willingness to put in the emotional energy as the teacher. And there's just no great shortcut around that fact. I think surgical teaching is unavoidably an active process and it's work. And it, it has a million great things that arise from it that, that, are, that are so self-evident. But but it is work. Um, and I think in the least, it costs you time and efficiency. And that ultimate desire for sort of surgical flow, which underpins a nice safe case. And at its worst, it potentially endangers the lives of the patients. And so on the flip side, it's really the most lasting legacy that, that most of us can hope to achieve in this game. And I would say that aside from a world-changing research discovery, which I would argue is pretty difficult for most of us to stumble across, teaching a resident to learn a new skill literally has the potential through the multiplier effect to benefit hundreds or thousands of people. And so it's, it's really right at, at, you know, when Chad, you and I have talked about legacy before, but it, it's right up there. Like I, for me, it, it's the essence of it. Um, and so, you know, to answer your question, my personal approach is to religiously go through a pre-brief discussion before the case with the trainees. And so everybody has their own take on this. For me, this is not a time to quiz the resident about the CT scan of the patient's history or the latest studies. I think, of course, our residents know that those elements are expected, but I don't waste particular time on that in the moment. I'm Rather, I'm trying to create an environment that's non-threatening, that they can bring as much confidence to the case as possible and not be distracted by things like that. I, I ask them very bluntly what their personal experience is with the given procedure just to gauge how new this is to them. Um, and, and in that moment and in those, those few sort of minutes of discussion, you can quickly convey the critical elements of the case in your mind, build a vision for the flow of the procedure. You talk about the most difficult elements and the pitfalls. And, and what happens is you instill the trainee with some confidence and excitement about the case. And it often opens up a brief and focused set of questions that they have. And, and almost always they've prepared, um, and, and it's their, their opportunity to show that to me. Um, and unless it's literally the very first time that I've ever done that procedure with the trainee, 
I try to tell myself that I regard this as being their case, even if it's, for example, only the second time they've done it with me. And I then let them do the procedure each step with uh, a ton of sort of moment to moment instruction for sure. Um, and this almost always gets them several steps into the case and always lets them get to their personal limit. Um, and so, so in many ways, Chad, they set that limit, not, not me. Um, and when we start to bump up against a technical wall, or it, it usually becomes fairly obvious to all of us when they've met their, their limit, and it's sort of my turn to show them the next few steps. And the really cool thing about that is, um, in many respects, the residents can go to incredible depths within a case just as a result of our collective preparation. It's almost always further than I think they'll get and further than they think they'll get. And, and then the flip side of that is it went when I take over, they, they get fairly intently focused on why and where they got log jammed. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've had residents complete cases at the beginnings of rotations with me that I, that I literally never got to do till I was at the very final components of my training. Um, and so it, 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 you occasionally have big wins like that. Certainly that, that's obviously, uh, those are the good times there, there's, there's sometimes it just doesn't doesn't go very far. The, the exchange isn't good. The room's not good. The case is tough. The you know the first port goes into the lung prankum and the whole case kind of gets derailed before you even started and stuff. And so it's but it, it's certainly a, it's kind of a, a neat way to start I think uh, for me. And that's that's sort of how I try to frame it in my brain on my better days. You know, as someone who was your your trainee, you know, I can remember this. A time when when I was scrubbing with you, and you actually had one of the medical students put in a port, I think for a vats or something like that. And I remember looking at you and thinking, "This is crazy! Like, uh, how, how are you letting a medical student put in this port?" But I I realized very quickly that you knew exactly what everyone in the operating room could or couldn't do, and I think largely because you know in your mind you had very specific ideas of of what you were going to do in this operation. And you were confident in your ability to, you know, both gauge the trainee and to, you know, clean up after us, so to speak. And I think that's a really underappreciated skill in a teacher. Let me ask you, if you have a trainee, let's say, who's struggling, and, you know, despite the fact that you've shown them a few times or, you know, you think they should be at a different place than where they are, how do you sort of deal with that and how do you overcome it? Yeah, I am. Um, I would say that the struggling resident is an is an immensely challenging problem um, as a as as a teacher. Um, it's it's certainly not the fun part of being a teacher. I, I think it's we all feel like superstar teachers when we have our gifted PGY seven residents in their final weeks of residency, you know, doing complex cases with us. We all feel like we're just wonderful instructors, but I think it's fair to say that most of us fall down pretty far with the difficult trainee or the residency who's in difficulty. Um, and I, I sort of think that there's a few different flavors or varieties of residents in difficulty, and you have to do a bit of diagnostic work to see what you can offer them. Um, so I sort of think there's roughly three types. There's the resident who's so inexperienced that every task is, is difficult and clumsy just by virtue of of not having seen and, and having done enough. There's next is the one who doesn't 
care and is sort of underperforming as a result, isn't committing themselves to the process. And then lastly is the one who cares and is working hard and just isn't advancing as they should. And they, they aren't assimilating concepts, their techniques are awkward and they just aren't meeting the standard that, that you and they would hope to. Um, and I think that we make the mistake of defaulting often to assuming that the resident difficulty is, is that second type who's, who doesn't give a darn. And, and I think that's potentially a dangerous set of assumptions. It, it's, it's absolutely sometimes the case. Um, but before I, I jump to sort of how I try to deal with it, I, for me, what's been hugely beneficial is to, to chat. And I, so my suggestion is you chat with your fellow faculty to gauge their experiences with that trainee. And it's, it's often enlightening to hear their thoughts about where they've had frustrations or, you know, they, they often will come at it from a fairly different perspective. Um, if they're an off-service resident, I'll, I'll page their, their home program director and, and just chat about maybe something that I've seen and see if that is a pattern of behavior or if this is just a this person's having a tough time on our service and maybe we need to, to kick our, uh, ourselves in a, in a better supportive environment. Um, and in some of the, the more difficult scenarios, I've had to talk to the postgraduate dean's office to see what options there are, what personal learning supports are available. Um, I think the first resident that's just inexperienced and, and is fairly straightforward. Um, you just need to gut it out. You have to haul more of the load than you want to, and you have to sort of teach them the beginnings of the craft. It, it's not easy teaching a brand new resident how to suture, for example, or how to hold the cautery or how to hold the scalpel when it sort of feels not really where your, your mental energies want to focus in that moment. Um, but, but I think that's how I approach that, that trainee. The, the second, I think, is, is tricky as well. I, I think, as I said, you, you have to be careful that you don't misjudge their apathy when it's possibly something more profound, like a learning difficulty or a personal issue. Um, you know, people are complicated. We often forget it as faculty, but residency is an insanely grueling process. And I think most of us started to break at certain points during the strains of residency and had trouble being our absolute best all of the time. And I certainly had periods like that. Um, I try with trainees uh, sort of like this, uh, to take the time, ask them how they're doing, try to probe them on where I think they've maybe come up a bit short and you can fairly quickly tell, I think, if they're engaged or if they have other things going on and occasionally you'll be surprised. I think in the end, if they're just not committing to the process as a learner, um, you still have to commit uh, to providing them with a bit of a, le with a learning experience for sure. But I think at least you can temper your expectations and commitments with what's possible. Um, the, the last resident is the poor resident who's busting their butt, but isn't really making the grade. And for me, these are the real heartbreakers. I think, thankfully, these are rare. Um, in my limited experience, these residents deserve our best. I, that means talking with your team of teachers, um, talking to the postgrad office, seeing if they need a mentor, um, seeing if they just need a bit of encouragement. Um, and, and I can honestly say that um, I've had uh, trainees that in the beginnings of their time with us thought they were not capable of, of progressing 
to what we thought was a safe and acceptable level. And I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised with fairly significant investments of energy on there and our part. And so I, even the, the struggling residents can, can often vastly move beyond where you see them in that moment. Um, a very rare few don't physically have the constitution or the aptitude to do surgery. And if you suspect that, um, these are pretty tough. It's, it's tough to speak openly about surgery as their correct choice of career. And um, I can distinctly remember a trainee who I think fell into this sort of categorization. And, and I spoke with the trainee and I, I spoke with the Dean's office. And when we approached the trainee to entertain sort of, if they thought this was working out for them um, through tears of relief, I'll never forget this in my lifetime. The resident was, was happy that somebody finally just said this to them. And it's something that clearly they had been aware of and had been thinking about for a long time. Um, and they pivoted to a different pathway with, I think it was a big win for everybody, but um, it was a fairly pivotal and challenging sort of circumstance. But so, so not everybody I think is, is suited to it for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and I think we often forget that there's this entire university infrastructure that, that it has like literally educational and learning experts that have access to a whole world of resources that we don't typically think of. We, I think we, we fairly, we're fairly quick to assume that most of the surgical trainees are, are just really bright, capable, hardworking people, which they are, but, but they're still just, just young people trying to learn a, a difficult sort of thing. So. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.